right. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on Your Rock. On the Oh my God. <laughs> Geology on your rock. Yeah, on my rocks. I, I saw you pouring the whiskey on the rock. So welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. A brief overview of this evening episode will include the intros and hellos, followed by the triple junction and new news. Our main discussion will dive into all things caves, limestones, and karst. Mm. Right? I don't think that one's plural. It's just karst. Just karst. Yeah, not karst. Karst. Just- Between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute. And before signing off, we close things out with another That Freaking Rocks. A huge thank you to all our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs each week, both to our new listeners and to our returning listeners alike, and for spending your time with us each week. That was a double week. So if you would like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, preguntas you are wanting respondida, <laughs> or just to tell us about all the times we were wrong, you can reach out to us at geologyotr at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram at geologyontherockspodcast, hashtag your geology daddies. <laughs> It does look like as if things are squared away over here. So without further ado to all of you over there, I am your host, James, the geologist. <laughs> and I'm Brian Baggins. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that, yeah. And this is Geology, Geology on the, the Rocks. Rocks. Well, hey, man. Hey, dude. Hey, another uh, week. Cheers. Oh, yeah. Let's do this. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. How was your week? Oh, it was good. Another week down teaching. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I do feel like I have lost that little kind of, I don't know, just right when I was getting into the swing of things of, you know, teaching the the pandemic, pandemic, the pandemic. I don't know what is wrong with my words today. <laughs> okay. So the, when I was getting comfortable teaching and, you know, I found that groove, Yeah, it, pandemic happened. Then I recorded all my lectures. And then, so I haven't had to speak <laughs> outside of like this podcast about geology. And I don't know, I was like, man, I'm going to get through this and this and this, like I have all these good ideas, but then I get so hung up and I'm like, but this is how, like, no, let's just, I, I feel like I just beat them over the head, much like we do certain some, topics. Like I just ep- can't, some episodes we like just... rock textures. I can't, it, it takes me so long. Cause I'm like, but this, but, but keep in mind this but, yeah, it, and then this. It's a, it's not just a one and done conversation. No, it, it's really not. But yeah. you know, that, that, that's the struggle I have. But uh, how yeah. was your week, man? It was good. I, uh, so I took the kids camping yeah. finally, I kind of broke that city kid thing in them so we went down we stopped at longhorn cavern which fits in with our episode it does nice um yeah and then speaking of nice i went down to enchanted rock i see what you did there yeah yeah and we did some primitive camping so you have to hike in two miles (laughs) over a pretty rugged (laughs) terrain and how old are the kids eight and ten yeah so they probably weren't happy with all the equipment and stuff yeah yeah like we i mean i had them carrying backpacks everything and um we had a little wagon like an off-road wagon so that was a saver but yeah we hiked in two miles and we did i guess we did three days there first day we did seven miles the second day we did 14 miles of hiking <laughs> not only also climbing the summit oh yeah China rock which is like i think it's like 48 stories yeah but still how was that the it's awesome it's awesome i mean you are on just a huge block of granite but you see little um like applite dikes okay. shooting through and some quartz pegmatites Nice. Stuff, so, so everything that we talked about on the great yeah. granite controversy. Well, speaking of that, so granites and granite. So we saw, I mean, I, I took some photos and I explained to the kids, they're probably like, dad, it's hot. They're like, there's, <laughs> there's probably snakes in the grass. Like, can we move on? Yeah. But I, I was able to see where the igneous granite stopped. Right. Yeah. So like an eye type 
granite. Uh-huh. <laughs> but then you had your migmatite, and then you had I forgot the name of the nice, but it's a biotite nice. Okay, that has nice little folds in it as well. Nice um, little yeah. folds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nice banding. But it was just cool to see those contacts. Oh yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that was my week, and then oh, I did take them to Six Flags. Okay, the one in San Antonio. No. Oh, the, the one, one up, up here. here. Yeah. Okay. That was fun. Except my son is apparently very timid about that. So my daughter's like, oh, he doesn't want to do anything. Nothing <laughs> is ruined. I'm like, come on, come on, guys. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, yeah, yeah, I don't, the kids, they, they just are, <laughs> yeah. they might get in line or like they're constantly screaming. Oh, it's so And bad. it's the, yeah. the older one just needs that affirmation and hanging out with his little brother. So he starts taking on six-year-old, even though he's an eight-year-old. Like, yeah. Attitude. So it is, man. <sighs> All right. Well, I guess on to a little triple junction. I don't have anything for fanfare feedback. I forget where I misspoke on the last episode, but I did. You did? Yeah. And it bothered me, but I can't remember what it is. Now. <laughs> well, I don't even know. I probably do it all the time. I mean, I, I don't know. Probably, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But it was something I said, oh God, what was it? Oh, when I think of it, I'm just going to randomly okay. bring it up yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in the episode. But then follow-ups, <laughs> we're going to, again, we activated the sponsorship. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not to be alarmed, but we're usually going to put that right before Mineral Minute. And at least it's fun when we talk about. Yeah. Uh, and we sound ethereal. like real uh, <laughs> radio people. <laughs> With terrible acting. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. one spot. <laughs> well, then we'll get into a little new news. I'll get a little party waltz going. Oh, that's a little loud. All right. Well, my article, I'll go ahead and lead off, was <laughs> titled Tree Farts <laughs> Increase Carbon Emissions. <laughs> And, it, and, and <laughs> so I, I just imagine these trees going, yeah, but anyway, so, and it's happening in these things called ghost forests. And have you ever heard of a ghost forest before? No, no. Yeah. So ghost forests being forests that were killed off by seawater due to sea level rise. Hmm. And what makes this interesting is that it's really, I guess, I guess it's really an underappreciated source of greenhouse gases. So this article came to us from E&E News that it's part of the Scientific American and trees that were poisoned and killed by saltwater emitting greenhouse gases known as tree farts. Like legit, <laughs> that's what the, the scientists are calling them. Prompting researchers to warn of a secret warming source that could become worse as rising seas encroach on forests. So these downed trees in what scientists called ghost forests increased the amount of carbon dioxide released by the ecosystems that they were a part of by about 25%, according to the study published last week in Biogeochemistry. The study reported that carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide from the trees contribute significantly, quote marks, to total emissions. And ghost forests span across the southern U.S. coastline from Louisiana to Maryland. They're named for the ghostly scenery, so they have pale trunks devoid of leaves or any telltale sign of life. And although most ghost forests Forests are created by rising sea levels. Saltwater can still infiltrate forests through canals and ditches used for agricultural purposes. And then the effects of the mass tree deaths on plants and wildlife can be dramatic. So a study published earlier this year in the ecological applications found that more saltwater tolerant shrubs and grasslands are moving into this area, mm. right? And then what that's doing, it's causing a major shift in wildlife yeah. and it's threatening endangered uh, wolves and woodpecker species in North Carolina. But this is happening all over. So all these yeah. things are coming in and changing the whole ecosystem. That's pretty nuts. That and that is, was a whole yeah. <laughs> a party wall it's in. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Tree farts. Yeah, tree farts. <laughs> <laughs> 
that was the tree <laughs> in the tree forest. No, nope. it's something that I didn't even think of. The, yeah. Again, one of those, I guess it's not even an unattended consequence. It's just a byproduct like that you don't sure. like what? Yeah. And when you said that, like I was like picturing, uh, I hate to bring it back to music, but like an album cover of these like trees, but <laughs> then you could just have these little like farting. <laughs> no. And that's what's making them the yeah. leaves actual ruffle, but they don't have any more leaves because they're dead. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, anyways, so that was my new cool. news story. Well, I mean, not cool, but you know. Yeah. I mean, at least now we know. Now we know. Now we know. So well, I'm going to get a little party waltz going for you. You talked about farting. Yeah. I'm going to talk about pooping. <laughs> <laughs> so scientists have been studying penguins and their poops. Okay. <laughs> and it was found out that these adorable aquatic birds can squirt squirt arcing jets <laughs> of poop to distances nearly twice their own body length. It's like a power dude. Yeah. And then not only just do they expel these, but they're like horizontally like shot out. <laughs> so there's no arc to it? No, it's like it, there is, but it's like mainly horizontal. Okay. Then like, so they started thinking like, okay, well, I think they found this result in like 2003, but now they started looking at like the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and so they realized pressure we know is measured in kilopascals usually. Yeah. Right? Like where one kilopascal is a thousand newtons per square meter. I wish we would have converted that to ATM just to give it a more... But, no. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been better. Well, the scientists calculated that the pressure generated in the rectums of the pooping penguins, which is much as 28.2 kilopascals. Okay. Which is, I I don't know. It's enough to shoot the dukes. And, and like, maybe we could... Oh, oh, that image is amazing. <laughs> but uh, we do have a pressure diagram <laughs> with forces in the rectum of the dude. <laughs> dude, let me see that diagram one more time. P equals P naught plus P T. Oh my goodness. So I guess it's uh <laughs> is it a function of the diameter of the yeah, of the rectum? Yeah, so or the sphincter? It, yeah, it is. So you have your they're basically taking like the cross sectional area and then what force is applied on that. I wonder what's giving them all that like I don't, <laughs> I don't know. know. What are they eating? Not only that, let's think about this. So the penguins stand only about twenty eight inches tall, but they send fecal bombs <laughs> flying at speeds of nearly five miles an hour. And they figured it out that they land just generally up to 53 inches away. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I've, I've seen like rhinos poop and that can be pretty bad, but like a penguin, you yeah, wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> little thing. Yeah. Are they the ones up in Antarctica or? Uh, that's up, a good question. Down. Um, I don't know. I, it I doesn't matter. Know. I guess it doesn't matter. I guess I'm not it, a penguin expert. It's, but it's not like the emperor penguin. No. Okay. It doesn't look like that. Okay. Well, yeah, anyways, so that's my story about fecal trajectory from penguins. Nice, nice, <laughs> nice. Dude, that, that, that blows my mind. So I where so they, they have to like study I don't I don't some of these stories I'm just like how? Like the uh like oh there's one, there's one right yeah. now. <laughs> you yeah. know, like some of these stories that we do are just like the, the <laughs> I, I think back to the harpooning oh. <laughs> slurping up the <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I don't know. That's why we're not biologists. No, I, I mean, would, I guess we have minors in that, right? Yeah, do, I mean, yeah. yeah, we do. Which is kind of a we're fake biologist. Yeah, we're we're semi biologists. Yeah. Well, speaking of biology and geology, on to episode thirty-one we go. Tonight's edition of Geology on the Rocks, we are going to talk about limestones in the context of it being a bedrock, right? And what happens when it interacts with water? We get to the the fancy term of spill spil- 
speleology. <laughs> speleology. Speleology yeah. is the science of cave environments and treats both its physical and biological aspects. And it may be closely compared with oceanography, if you will, which deals with the same features of the marine environment. Yeah. And so speleology <laughs> is one, it's one of the newer sciences, yeah. right? So I think we were looking into like 1960s, a little bit before that, right? That uh-huh. they really kind of putting a science aspect to exploring caves and, and describing them. But it's undergone vigorous expansion in just the past few decades um, and has really brought to light many new questions uh, as well as new facts. And that's led to the formulation of unifying principles that make the understanding of some cave processes easier to understand. Yeah. I always think of the word spelunking, but spelunking is sticking your hand or your fist in to catch the, catch the catfish, right? That's, is it not? That's spelunking, spelunking is... No, that's where you go cave like exploring. Okay. Then what's the one where you, you like, noodling? Noodling. <laughs> I'm like, that's not. I mean, Why did, it's kind of. Like how did I even get those there? two terms mixed up? Noodling. <laughs> oh my god! I thought. <laughs> Anyways, that's awesome. So yeah, so caves in their natural state, caves have great beauty and scientific value, but unfortunately, they are very easily damaged. So damage to caves is all the more unfortunate because they constitute a natural resource that is. So like the redwood forest, for example, comparatively. They're, they're pretty rare. Yeah, so that actually brings up a good point. So I went to Longhorn Caverns this past week. Yeah, it's how convenient. Like, yeah, yeah. We this, is, this is kind of like a, a pop-up a, episode. Like at today, we decided yeah. to do caves and cars. But that's a really massive cave in central Texas. Mm-hmm. It's like a little, I think it's west of Austin, southwest maybe. Okay. But it's in a very old formation called Ellenberger Limestone and Dolomite. Yeah. That's like Cambrian Ordovician age. But it's old. Super old. <laughs> yeah, but it sits it over it's on a fault block that overlies the Precambrian granites. Yes. So one thing that I was glad that the guide talked about was don't touch cave formations like flowstones, stalactites, stalagmites, because when you do, you're adding your oils. Your oils, right. And that that slicks up the surface, and therefore the water that will carry the calcium carbonate, it doesn't have the residence time to keep forming it. So you basically are killing the cave formation from continuing to build by your nasty, dirty hands. Yeah. But yeah, I thought- and, what, and what we'll talk about here in a little bit is that as soon as it's exposed to air, that the caves stop forming anyway. Yeah. That's, that's so also now, like, wild yeah. to think about. Yeah. At that point, it's just what they're making is the stalactites and stalagmites. And the easy way to remember that is the stalactites has a C in it for ceiling, and stalag- M for mountain. I always say stalag with the G, so ground. Oh, I always say stalagmite like a, a mountain. That's a good would, way too. Yeah. So like, but stalag- Stalagmite with the G ground stalactite. That's a better way, maybe. C- I don't know. Ceiling. They're both good. And then when they meet in the middle, they make the, the column. Yeah, like, I like that one. Well, so the largest caves are actually small compared with major scenic features on the surface. Yeah. The total volume of limestone caves in the world, it's probably less than 50 cubic kilometers, which is less than one ten millionth of the entire volume of the ocean. Yeah, so I mean, it, I think it's hard to quantify the the ocean, but it's it's yeah. it's going to be a very small portion. But a dramatic interplay takes place among the various forms of life that inhabit the caves. These mm. forms, they they must be able to share their small world with members of their own species and of other species. So they also must be able to tolerate the physical and chemical influences of their surroundings. Speaking of cave life, so I really want to see some salamanders 
salamanders. Yeah. The, um, and cave crickets, but bats. I thought I would see some of, what are the, is it like the Texas brown bat or fruit? I don't know what they are, but they're like the larger bat. Those left this cave a long time ago. And so now it's inhabited by non-colonizing bats that are called the tricolor bats. Seriously, I saw one and it was an inch and a half. That's that's like their grown size, their adult size. And I was just, I didn't even know. I was like, why are these people looking at <laughs> There's nothing there. There's nothing like there. Tiny little bat. Little it was bat. awesome. But people also have lived in these caves, right? Yeah, yeah. So they've used them as dwelling places, burial sites, storehouses, places of worship. I also learned that Longhorn Cavern was a place where they used to go have ballroom dancing and concerts, underground concerts. When, was, when was this? Like in the 30s, 40s. Okay. Yeah, like a long time 1930s. ago. 1930s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so like for many centuries, early societies, they attached an almost mystical significant to caves. Hey, Brian. Poems by James. <laughs> this poem is brought to you by John Freeman, and it's mm. called The Caves. And it goes a little something like this. You're looking at me all weird. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> like the tide knocking at the hollowed cliff and running into each green caves as if, in the caves night to keep eternal motion grave and deep. That even while each broken wave repeats, it's answered knocking with bruised hand beats again, again, again tossed between ecstasy and pain. Still in the folded hollow darkness swells, sinks, swells, and even green hung hollow fills till there's no room for sound save that old anger rolled around. So into every hollow cliff of life, into this heart's deep cave so loud with strife, in tunnels I knew not, in lightless labyrinths of thought. The unresting tide has run and the dark filled, even the vibration of old strife is stilled. The wave returning bears muted those time-breathing airs. How shall the million-footed tide still tread these hollows and in each cold void cave spread how shall love here keep eternal motion grave and deep so that's it wow so that was awesome do you know if he's british or american it's probably british <laughs> i wonder if he's talking so i immediately thought of cornwall because yeah. he was talking about the green walled caves and yeah. stuff a lot of copper deposits in okay. those caves and yeah no thinking, yeah yeah but so it's more what we'll talk about at the very very end cool of sea caves which cool. would probably been a better spot for it but well but this was, this is perfect. Yeah. So this is kind of the, the human aspect of caves. Uh, what's better than a poem? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's <where I'm> at. <laughs> Thanks for highlighting that to me, Brian. So, but so they didn't, I mean, I'm sure they wrote poems in caves, but prehistoric cave drawings have been discovered in various parts of Asia, Africa, and Europe that are more than 25,000 years old. And yeah. the cool thing is, is the ones in France, they think it's probably like our closest oh. humans, the, the, the Cro-Magnons. Yeah. So they're the ones who oh, did we would have yeah. talked about that. Yeah, we would have talked about that today. Way to go, Greta. Yeah, thanks, Greta. <laughs> well, so, yeah, so these drawings, so we have, we do have a lot of cave drawings in North America. They don't happen to be that old, uh -huh. I believe. But many of these drawings that you spoke of, they're well-preserved by the cave environment. And they, they're actually like, the technical skill is really high in the artists. It's like these early <laughs> beings that we're related to, they actually still had some refinement yeah. to their hands and, and the delicacy of the work. Yeah, and we can see them where you with the more sophisticated drawings would probably lead you to believe that this is, oh, well, these are the early, early, early humans. Yeah. yeah. Only recently have we really come to realize that caves have an interest apart from the light that they throw on the lives of our remote ancestors or the animals whose fossil remains preserved in them. Caves, they've been explored for several hundred years, particularly in France and Germany, but it really wasn't until the middle of the 19th century did caves become the object of intensive scientific 
investigations. This scientific quest indicates it gave rise to what we call speleology, and that derives from the Greek. It's speleon? Spele- I don't know. It's, it sounds Greek to me. So it means cave and logos, obviously, study as yeah. any science is <laughs> out there. But these early pioneers were both geologists and biologists, uh-huh. and they soon realized that the vast underground areas they entered offered extensive mapping problems. So, and you can understand why, but no one understood the origins of the caves and the the strange blind animals that you often see, they were virtually unknown. So when doing this this kind of research for this episode, fun fact that 2021 is actually the year of speleology in caves. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, so why is it? Why is that? Like, I don't know. I just, I don't, I, I YouTubed caves and then it was like the year of speleology. Well, you know, in caves. So if I didn't have my job and I could pick any job in geology, yeah, which is going to be weird because I'm a hard rock guy, right? Yeah. I would... Metal? Yeah. Yeah. Hardly metal. Like, yeah, I like hard yeah. rock too. <laughs> I would be a cave explorer. I yeah. really think I would. And which is weird because I would get, I would feel very claustrophobic in areas, but I, I still want to do it. Dude, I'm I'm with you. I've I've seen I don't know if it was on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel where it's like people were training to do or or maybe it was like a, something with like the the dirtiest jobs or the hardest jobs and it's one of the harder jobs yeah. is uh huh because mm-hmm. you you have to worry about not only having strength that you to climb and climb up and down yeah to have the mental strength <laughs> you know, you're down sometimes you know hundreds of feet below surface there's no light so and and I also think of like lack of oxygen and all that like in certain areas. Yeah, but I think the the most dangerous part about all of that is where it's not getting trapped. It's I think falling is the the yeah. biggest hazard. Yeah. So as, I mean, people think of it them being I guess more horizontal, but there is that that some of them have these huge vertical aspects to them. As caves become better known, we have realized that they can broaden our understanding of the interactions of certain biological and geological processes that have been shaping our planet and its inhabitants for millennia now. Yeah. So the the study of caves it's important in understanding our world, right? Uh-huh. So the question then remains, how did they get there? And lucky for you guys, we're going to shed some light on that. Yeah. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, we will, Mr. Baggins. So caves and limestone is going to be the, the the main discussion that we're going to have here today. The caves and limestones are many times as numerous as those in other kinds of rock. So let's establish that they're yeah. they're the most numerous and the most abundant, so they're going to get most of the attention. They, they, they really are, and uh, they're also unrivaled in size, especially mm-hmm in the distances to which they extend underground. Some individual rooms in limestone caves are larger than any man-made room underground that's been or yeah. created. Mammoth Cave, so in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, it's in the Flint Mammoth Cave System, yes. I think. It's the world's largest cave, so it's part of a winding series of connected passages. It's got a total surveyed length of over 300 kilometers or you like 190 miles. That, that's <laughs> what? The, the, the extent, so 190 miles that's like basically from here to austin yeah is that cave system the word i guess the mappable that's yeah that's nuts so another massive cave is carlsbad cavern located in new mexico it has one chamber whose area is thirty-eight thousand square meters and it's about four so that's roughly about 14 times that of a football field yeah (laughs) jesus and the ceiling rises up about 75 meters which is roughly one and a half (laughs) times the height of niagara falls wow just to give it to some kind of context have you been there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I went when I was really little. I need to go back. It's huge. 
Yeah. No, yeah, I saw the the bats come out of that yeah. one. And yeah. I, dude, it's, I don't yeah. know, bats freak me out. They, they still it's, do. It's Except their, for the little, the little one. But the it's tricolored their, it's, bat. It's their face. I don't know. I think it's the scrunch. <laughs> I just see like Gollum's face on it. I don't know. Well, so I, I'd venture to say that these enormous chambers, like th- that enormous volume, they're they're probably uncommon. So in most limestone caves, they're actually pretty small. Yeah. Uh, but these these are examples that show what natural forces can do in the way of underground excavation when given sufficient time. Yeah, and I, I really think it does. To say that it's, it's impressive falls, I think, a little short of the mark. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to think that this process for these larger caves, millions of years to develop, and it, they're continuously, right, happening and shaping some of the landscapes beneath our feet today so it's going on yeah so let's take a step and like let's talk about how they form in in our eyes as a geologist yeah okay so we have the word limestone or we've said the word limestone many times already and these are primarily the rocks caves form in and the rock is typically limestone or marble and we know marble is just limestone that has been recrystallized by heat and pressure so it's metamorphic but both are composed of this mineral calcite or calcium carbonate Mm -hmm. CaCO3 yeah, and so limestone and marble that now contains the caves were formed in ancient seas millions of years ago, right? Yeah. By marine organisms and plants that extracted that calcium carbonate from the seawater. And sand grains composed of fragments of the skeletons of these organisms together with extremely small grains produced by microorganisms. They're later compacted by overburden pressure, right? Yeah. Cemented into the solid rock limestone. Boom. Boom. Then, believe it or not, tectonic forces uplift these sediments slash metamorphic rocks from the sea. And right, so when they're uplifted, they're exposed mm-hmm. them to the air and to the dissolving power of fresh underground water. Mm-hmm. The researchers, they've long determined that relative ages of limestone formations and other sedimentary rocks by studying the fossils within them. But it is now possible to estimate the absolute ages of many rocks within a few thousand or millions of years. Yeah, thanks to the uranium thorium system. Hey, I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So thanks to uranium, which we've talked a lot about. So they can date these formations by dating the (laughs) fossiliferous rocks that contain uranium ores from the amount of lead that's then accumulated in them through radioactive decay of the uranium isotopes. From there, we can infer that a rock containing the same fossils, but no uranium ore is the same age, right? So, I mean, we're kind of using that, that reasoning to be like, oh, Okay, similar fossil assemblages. So in this way, we have come to learn that the Mammoth Cave, for example, is roughly 325 million years old. Mm. And Carlsbad Cavern is about 250 million years old. Wow. With that in mind, the age of the cave, it bears little relation to the age of the rocks, right? For instance, like the cave I was in, those are Cambrian Ordovician. So like 400 and something million years old. Yeah, right? well, 542. Oh, no, the that's when the, I think 542 is the... The explosion or yeah. the... Yeah. But the cave is only like 18 million years old. Yeah. So just think of that. Like it has to do not, not only like you need that the induration of the rock, but you need the uplift and you need something structural usually to initiate it. In fact, all the important limestone in the caves in the world, including rocks formed hundreds of million years ago, they're really like less than 10 million years old. The caves are. And that's what I found. One of the more intriguing facts is that they're relatively geologically, we say 10 million years, like, (laughs) ah, it's a blink of the eye. That's nothing. It's nothing, right? But it's, it really is compared to the billions of years. (laughs) So the, the limestone removed in producing a cave is not simply 
dissolved in water, right? So what we think, so the the limestone is only slightly more soluble in pure water than quartz, the chief mineral of sandstone, and is less soluble than most of the minerals in such rocks as your granites and your basalts, neither of which contain solution caves. Then the process that forms these caves through is basically through acids. Yeah. attacking the calcite, not not water. Even very dilute acids, as those in groundwater, they can produce caves if given enough time. Good old time bears its head again when, we t- when we're talking about <laughs> geology. Go <Yeah>. figure. <laughs> so I had to use this term a lot on my last field mapping. We have to remember the term effervescence, yeah. right? So, or to effervesce. And that's what's happening, but less vigorous as if you were to drop pure hydrochloric acid on limestone, but the, the same process is happening. Or you could throw the... You have hydrochloric acid and you throw limestone chips in it and like, yeah, there's this really cool, I want to, I don't know why this randomly comes in my head, but coming with limestone and when it's a buffering system. So if you have like Mm. granitic rocks and you pour acid, I mean like it, it stays acidic, but if you have limestone chips and you pour like any like strong acid in it, it does like that. And you put, what's the hell is it? I don't Yeah. The phenophyllo. Yeah. So the color where it changes colors from acid base. Yeah. But the phenophylline, but it's, it's a different one. It's, it's, it's indicator. So it shows it, but if you put it through the limestone chips, it, it does a rainbow color. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, that's cool. They So they, they use limestone like that for acid mine draining yeah. to create that buffer, like in their spoils ponds and stuff. They'll line it with limestone boulders. It makes stuff. sense. Because yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. So that the acid, again, here, so when we're talking about caves, the acid chiefly responsible for the natural dissolution of limestone to form caves is carbonic acid. Mm-hmm. And this is H2CO3. It's produced when carbon dioxide, the universal product of plant decay and animal respiration, right? So it combines with water. And then carbonic acid, we have to keep in mind, it's a weak acid, even at maximum concentration. So, Which means it does not completely dissociate in water. That's what a, so a weak acid is something that does that. A strong acid doesn't mean it's, oh, it's going to like rip your skin off and stuff. Yeah. It may, yeah. but, but what the defining term of weak and strong acids has to do with its disassociation, okay. its chemical compound will in water. Which I, I thought that's the one thing I remember from freaking Kim too. I don't know <laughs> from why. Kim too. Like that's all I remember. Dude, chemistry um, was the the worst. It was terrible. I hate it. And now, like, I like geochem though. Yeah, I don't. Get I mean, it. but there's certain aspects yeah. of it. But you, so you were talking about carbonic acid and how it was formed. I wanted to talk about like our our atmosphere. It contains point. 0.03% CO2 by volume. But the carbonic acid produced from this is it's too dilute to be very effective in forming caves. Most of the carbon dioxide responsible for creating the acid to produce, the, to dissolve the limestone and produce the cave, it comes from soil. Where decay of soil humus, it produces pretty large amount. The carbon dioxide combines with the water produced carbonic acid, which in turn attacks the calcite and divides it into soluble ions. So one cubic meter of water exposed to air containing 10% carbon carbon dioxide, if kept in contact with the limestone until the reaction ceases, can dissolve up to about 250 grams of calcite. Like I always was under this assumption that it was the, just the atmosphere, like, cause you know, it, it dissolves yeah. like headstones and you right. know, architecture, but it's really a lot of it's coming from the soil as it's percolating down. It's, it's taken in. Yeah. I didn't put that together either. That's cause I always thought that too. Like especially now. So if we have more acidic rain, right, which that's a whole nother. I think that's sulfur, right? (laughs) 
Yeah. And like we're gradually, especially in our area in the next 50 years, if we don't change course, we could see a lot more of that. Huh. More caves though. <laughs> especially so, here. Yeah. Yeah. Lord. Until recently, scientists generally thought that caves had been made by underground streams, just as valleys are made by surface streams. I mean, not knowing, I think that would yeah. kind of make sense. So it wasn't until the Austrian geologist Alfred Grund and the American geologist W.M. Davis, they pointed out that the, the the shapes of the cave passages, they don't really resemble passages formed by downcutting streams. Right. Cave passages, they usually form a network. So the cave maps often look like maps of cities with lots of intersecting streets, right? 90 degrees. And yeah. Stuff. yeah. So yeah. Uh, such a grid, it's it's quite different from that made by surface streams where the pattern, like the tributaries joining the mainstream is often like that of a branching tree. I mean, we have our like trellis and all that drainage systems, but generally you don't like, but when you see the trellis, right, that's on uh, like jointed rocks. Right. uh, Yeah. Like when it's not very cutting down much. That's, that's, that's that's correct. But the caves, they often look more like these blocked out cities. And then scientists, now we understand it, that most caves are formed by slow, slowly moving water in the zone right below the water table, which is the base or the level below which the rocks are water saturated or the soil, right? It's mm-hmm. completely saturated. And then a second line of evidence against the hypothesis that caves are formed by underground rivers is that cave walls generally are smooth or gently undulating like the pictures you were showing me. So the, the beds of fast moving streams on limestone are they're never smooth. Yeah. And in, in those places where surface streams flow on limestone or where, you know, a stream has entered a previously existing cave, the bed of the stream is always pitted, you know, with small solution pockets and what you call these scallops. Yeah. These distinct indentations, which are usually a few centimeters to a meter across, have steep slopes on the upstream side and gentle ones on the downstream downstream side. Jeez, I can't say my words. And then scallops, (laughs) therefore, are sometimes useful for determining the direction of flow of former cave streams, although they are usually present only in small parts of a cave system. Yeah. Or just not at all. Yeah, and we we use that like it's kind of like the imbrication of class, like in your river gravels and stuff. The angles will tell you and like how they're aligned, which way it is. So yeah. Of course, you would see that in, in a scallop or a scoured pitted surface. Yeah. When they're present, they're they're formed by you know, a stream that penetrated the cave late in its history. And they're going to lie near the floor below a definite high water line. The absence of small scallops in the greater part of most of the limestone caves, it it supports the hypothesis that caves were not formed by underground streams, but they're actually formed more by slowly, slowly moving water. Uh And then by implication below the water table line. Yeah. Yeah. So then on to groundwater we go. So that was the, the, the hypothesis. So the, the rate of horizontal movement of water in the small fractures below the water table is commonly less than 10 meters per year, whereas in cave-sized conduits, it averages about 0.2 kilometers per hour. Yeah, the water, it's going to move downward through cracks to that water table, and then it collects in joints, partings in the rock below the water table, and it's going to move through the limestone to points of discharge at at streams. When the, the fractures are small, the water becomes saturated with the calcite. Soon after it descends below the water table, so the the really the early stages of dissolution are very slow. So it's not just going to, hey, there's water coming down. We're going to have a cave, <laughs> right? So during this early period, flexing by the earth tidal action along the joints may help actually pump the water along, which is cool. Like the, yeah. the, the tidal forces. When you think of it, like it's not, you're not seeing like, 
oh, that, that the carbonic acid just now created this hole. Like it's actually, it etches at yeah. the calcite. So, and, and there's a rate of that. I forgot what that rate is, but they have tried to figure that out. We, we actually use that a little bit in our foundations under dams. Like how fast is this calcite going to dissolve with this molarity of carbonic acid? So yeah, it's pretty cool. But so the acids produced within the rocks, like by oxidation of sulfide minerals in the limestone, that can accelerate the process okay. of the dissolution as well in, in places will permit it to operate at considerable depth below the water table. So I think of, uh, what is it like the, the pyrotization? Of, yeah, exactly. Of, so like that will, yeah, it aids in that it's speeding up process, right? Yeah. And then the, the rate of flow is at first about equal through all the joints, right? So as, as this body of water is moving through it, it's all going to be moving roughly along these joints, etching it out or along the, uh, roughly around the same speed. But as some channels grow larger than others, they're able to take in more water and therefore they're going to be able to grow faster. When a channel reaches a certain critical size, and I think they've measured this to be roughly about five millimeters in diameter, it subsequently grows at such a fast rate that it greatly outpaces adjacent channels and takes nearly all of the water flow at that point. Hence, it's going to grow even faster and faster. It's still not fully understood why the critical moment is when the channel reaches five millimeters, but one possibility is that the diameter of flow in the channel becomes turbulent. Oh, wow. That, I guess, yeah, yeah. That, that would make sense. Like as soon as it gets uh, a certain diameter, it's going to start being more turbulent. Energy is energy, right? When water is sufficiently undersaturated, the start of turbulence in a limestone channel greatly increases the effectiveness of that dissolution process. What I imagine it being much like, so when you're dissolving sugar, right? And in this case, the fresh undersaturated solution is constantly being brought into contact with that solid. If you're stirring it, that turbulent yeah. flows, it's replacing it and putting the undersaturated into contact with the limestone. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but hey, Brian, hey. I say we take a, a quick break to help pay for our science trips. Yeah, that's it. Let's do that. And this brings us to a little mineral. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Mineral. Mineral minutes. <laughs> Minerals. This week's Mineral Minute is brought to you by the hydrous iron zirconium phosphate mineral, Malmudite. <laughs> Malmudite has a chemical formula of FeZr <laughs> phosphate times two. Well, tell everyone what a phosphate okay. is. PO4. Okay. PO4 and two. four water. Okay. Yeah. So Malmudite is usually the last to be deposited in the cavities that it occurs. The mineral is very rare with the only common place to find it being in Wilson Springs, Arkansas. Mm. However, a few other specimens have been found in Belgium and England. You said Arkansas. Arkansas. <laughs> Malmudite has a creamy white color with a silky luster. Just like your voice, Brian. So, <laughs> so Malmudite has a hardness of three and a specific gravity of 2.877 calculated. Malmudite is biaxial. <laughs> I don't know why I read that as bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With moderate surface relief and dispersion is relatively weak. The Fe2 plus analog of <laughs> Ziggrosite. <laughs> Ziggrosite. Wow. Yeah. The spherules. 
spherules. I can't say I've never spherules. been spherules. spherules. Oh my god, spherules. in my head, spherules. It's, it's like I know what they are. Spherules. Yeah. Spherules. Well, that of Malmudite <laughs> is they're made up of thin, flat, radiating, optically homogeneous crystals and seem to form in a parallel extinction. <laughs> And positive elongation. The cores of the spherules appear to be loose material making up about one third to one half of the radius of the spherule. <laughs> spherule. However, the core seems to show light. Wait, it shows higher amounts of silica than the rest of the spherule <laughs> by using X-ray spectra. Malmudite is monoclinic and is considered a pseudo-hexagonal with orthorhombic dimensions. Stay tuned for next week's mineral, schoonerite. Schoonerite. That seems fun. Schoonerite yeah. seems like you can that. have a schooner. Yeah. While we talk about it, let's do it. All right. So we've paid the bills. Talked about a little yep. mineral remnant. So let's talk. And we just talked about how caves enlarge. Let us now move to the stages of cave evolution. the The formation of limestone caves is directly related to the development of the overlying land surfaces. So many instances of nearly horizontal cave passages occur in areas of modern mountain building activity, where earthquakes are common and young sediments have been noticeably tilted. I think a, a good example would be seen at the cave in Lehman Caves National Monument in Nevada. Okay. They have nearly level passages, even though the mountain range in which they lie, the rocks have been tilted within the past five million years. Yeah, yeah. And this this to me is really showing that the limestone caves are, geologically speaking, very young and short-lived, right? So if that's yeah. horizontal, but you've had this tilting and the tilting happened, you know, X right. amount, like five million <laughs> years ago, it's had to- Love, superposition in a way, right? Like in cross-cutting relationships. It's yeah, just, so, this mean, is a, in, in the sense, a cross-cutting yeah, form. I, yeah, I, I will agree with that, Brian. Yeah. Well, it seems from the initial stages to the time it's destroyed by the collapse of a room, it's a process that occurs in no more than a few million years. Right, and and the limestone caves usually develop in four distinct stages, right? So the, the first stage being the initial enlargement of the joints that we talked about, and the, the partings by groundwater in the water-saturated zone. In stage two, the development of master channels directly below the water table during a period of when the altitude of the water tables it's relatively stable and as high partial pressure of carbon dioxide exists at the top of the water saturated zone. Yeah and then stage three is the transitional stage in which nearby streams have cut down to the point where their seasonal fluctuations are going to strongly affect the level of the water table in the cave sometimes introducing river silt into the cave system because you're like how does that get in there? Yeah, the final stage. Stage four. Final <laughs> That's where we see the lowering of the water table and down cutting of the surface until an opening to the surface is then created. The carbonic acid it content of the cave water, it'll consequently become so low that the water ceases to dissolve the limestone. Then meanwhile, the acid content in the aerated zone between the soil and the cave remains relatively high. So in this final phase of this stage, therefore, surface sinkholes enlarge by dissolution until some of them join and the roof of the cave progressively is going it's going to collapse and is eroded away. Late in the history of a limestone cave, after that water table has been lowered and air has then replaced the groundwater, you'll see some sculpting. And it's during this period that a surface stream may enter the cave. It'll carve notches on its walls, leave record of the aforementioned uh, scallops that uh -huh. we talked about, and stream sediments. And also during this stage, also... 
During the stage also, underground vertical shafts may be cut through the horizontal cave passages. Such vertical shafts, they're, they're often called dome pits. And what's interesting is this is they're called dome pits because from below you look up at a dome, right? And then from above, you look down into a pit. Wow, so, so <laughs> creative. I know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dome pit. Well, so the, these dome pits, they're usually between one and 10 meters in diameter. Uh-huh. They have vertical extents up to 50 meters. So, so. That, isn't that the, that's the same distance um, to which crevices open up in glaciers? Oh, okay. The so crevices, wow. you could, like the, the good thing is, is like you're not going to continuously fall down in the crevices of glaciers. <laughs> You'll eventually. Yeah, but it's only 50 meters. But the, the bad thing, if you fall down a crevice is that you fall 50 meters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think I probably wouldn't survive that. I don't know. Would it's you? 150 feet. Yeah. So what's that? 15, know. 12 stories. I don't know. Is that? 150 feet if What's like 10 a, yeah. to 12 feet is a story i would just hope i could like take my rock hammer and slam <laughs> it into the wall <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know all right well anyways so the walls they're characterized by vertical grooves right and that'll that contrasts sharply with the smoother walls in most of the other parts of the cave okay most of the horizontal cave passages they're going to bear little relation to surface topography dome pits they generally underlie heads of stream valleys beneath the centers of sinkholes or along a line where a layer of impermeable non-carbonate rock cover has been eroded off the limestone and these features again they're going to be younger than the cave itself and that their formation often bears no relation to the position of the older main cave passages. Typically, just a narrow slot are going to be connecting the dome pit with the older main passages of the cave. And it's been shown that they are actually cracks or joints that have been enlarged through dissolution by which the water rapidly moves through from the soil down towards the water table. So yeah, it forms distinct vertical grooves on the walls of the shafts, which are a result of film of water flowing down the walls. Oh, that's cool. Like the the water coming down. So that's how they're forming. Yeah, the the water retains a modest amount of carbon dioxide content and it's not been in contact with limestone long enough to exhaust the capacity to dissolve. Okay, so that's make more sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So most dome pits, they're still being formed today by solution under aerate conditions. It's a process quite different from solution at or below the water table by which the main passages are formed. Yeah, and then with rock dissolution being an important agent in the origin of limestone caves, it brings to mind the land surfaces and cave areas and how it leads to a distinctive topography, which we know as karsts, mm. right? And then the word karst is actually derived from Slovenia, either from the, the word car, which is rock, or karst, rast, 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 H-R-A-S-T, rast, which is oak. And it was first used by the Austrian map makers in 1744 as a name for the rock oak forest karst, right? So there's this forest hmm. that's karsted in Slovenia and the cave region that lies in the northwestern Slovenia and northeastern Italy. Yeah, so, so I think it's actually called like, a, it's not karst, it's cross. Okay. Like K-R-A-S, but the Germanic language switched sure. over to karst. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know. Now I, I want to go there. Yeah. So all these places we mentioned, I, that'll I'm gonna add that Note. to the list. Take me with you. But so karst, it's it's generally used now to mean any terrain where the topography has been formed chiefly by the dissolving of rock. Karst areas commonly have inward sloping depressions at the surface. Drainage is subterranean though, through which I'm sure you guessed it. <laughs> K 
caves. No way. Yes. No way. Go yeah. figure, man. So yeah, the <laughs> when we think about it in the karst, right? So the the bare rock in karst regions is usually covered by U-shaped solution grooves or mm. channels from about one millimeter to a, a meter across, separated by these sharp ridges. And then where the rock is covered by solid or where the soil has recently been removed, round fissures may occur along the joints in the in the bedrock. Karst is characterized by several different types of large-scale topographic features that are gradational okay. with each other. Within cave areas of the humid temperature parts of the U.S. and in Europe, usual type is sinkhole karst, so high Florida, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, characterized, it's, it's funnel-shaped depressions. Okay, yeah, and these sinkholes... <laughs> So these sinkholes have dimensions most commonly measured in meters or tens of meters. So the, the upper level of the sinkhole karst forms on otherwise continuous surface <laughs> interrupted by the sinkholes, which in many places impinges against one another. Humid tropical cave areas like Puerto Rico, <laughs> Southeast, I don't know what's coming. Southeast Asia, they're distinguished by two related types of karst. Yeah, the, the first being the yin to your doo-doo maker, Jane. <laughs> doo-doo maker. The cockpit karst. <laughs> okay. <Jeez. laughs> doo-doo, was it Brian's doo-doo maker? Yeah. <laughs> okay, the first of these two related type of karst is the yin to your doo-doo maker, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> the cockpit karst. So, <laughs> the cockpit karst consists of terrain made up of conical hills alternating with polygonal or star-shaped depressions, the whole resembling a molded egg carton of sorts. So there are these these pockmarks that yeah. kind of look like uh, your... Wow. Yeah. Like a, a star-shaped depression. I have to... Yeah, your doo-doo maker. Yeah, that is what it's like. Okay. <laughs> well, so the second's known as tower karst. That's going to consist of more widely separated steep-walled hills. They're going to rise from flat valleys or plains. And these tower-like hills, with they're going to have rocky overhanging cliffs. They usually have caves at their bases. That's what in China, like all the movie footage you see in like Thailand and China. Thailand. Um, is it, but they also, is it in Vietnam too, where they have like the really cool ones? Or yeah. Is that, uh, yeah. I think that whole area. Area. Yeah. Dude, that's, they, these are the, the coolest parts because it's like the... And the then they have parts. like temples and stuff on top. It's like, yeah. Oh, How do you get up there? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Then there's the the lowland flats in the tower karst of tropical regions are perhaps related to the large basins in temperate karst regions known as interior valleys. So an interior valley is an enclosed depression several kilometers in diameter that has a flat floor and steep walls. During the rainy season, springs uh, feed streams that cross the fertile alluvia floor of the valley and they, they sink into caves on the lowest side. Yeah. I think that might be a blind valley. I think that that may be something. I remember studying that for the PG. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, but during these heavy rain events, the so caves, like the monsoons, they're not going to be able to handle that runoff, right? Yeah. And so within a few hours, the interior valley becomes a lake. But at the end of the rain, the lake will disappear pretty much as quickly as it formed. I think that would be cool. Could you imagine? Because like it's all draining into the, yeah. the cave system underneath. So it's <laughs> like this lake forms away. and then, uh-oh, 
it stops raining and yep. then bam. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the presence of soil and its nature and distribution in different climatic zones is believed to be an important factor in the development of these various types of karst. So the cliffed walls of the karst towers and of the interior valleys are clearly related to the rapid solutional erosion under a soil blanket in the valley and at the foot of the cliffs. This alluvial blanket, it forms a cover that holds in carbon dioxide, which it'll combine with surface water to form that weak carbonic acid. Right. And it speeds up the process of dissolution. And so basically the development of karst features requires that the process of dissolution be faster than, you know, the other types of erosion that affects all rocks. Correct. Where where the moisture is sparse or the temperature is usually low, the distinctive karst landforms develop only poorly. Hence, in cold, arid lands where dissolution is slow, limestones form mountains, whereas in warm and humid areas, the dissolution is rapid and it's going to form the, the lower topography than any of the other types of rocks nearby. The more you know. Right? Well, I think <laughs> lastly, briefly, let's talk about the caves that are not of limestone origin, mm. right? So, and then these include sandstone caves. They're going to be in the form of sea caves, yeah. which the poem was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then lava, lava tubes not lava tubes. <laughs> so sandstone caves, they're widely used for shelter by many early peoples. Yeah. Right. Uh, they like them because they're, they're shallow, right? Deep limestone caves, they're going to be too wet, cold and dark. You really can't see anything down there. No, so, you yeah. can't. So it's not going to make for a really good time to live no. in, right? So, <laughs> no. And then the sandstone caves are formed at the bases of cliffs where certain parts of the rock are less well cemented than other parts. So the this means that the surface water moving down the cliff dissolves away the cement in the areas and causes the sand grains to fall apart and then be removed. Also at the same time, the Upper sandstone surfaces get harder because additional cement is deposited there from the water drawn to the surface by capillary function, right? That's and that's cool. Like, it is, yeah. So good examples of sandstone shelter caves are going to be the famous Quiftil... Quif <laughs> the Quif... Quif. <laughs> <laughs> the Quif dwellings. <laughs> Please, sir. Add... At Mesa Verde National Park in Southern Colorado. Yeah, no, that place is really cool. I, yeah. I took the kids there the summer before COVID oh, did its nice. thing. Yeah, so okay. then there are the these things called sea caves, and sea caves are somewhat similar to sandstone caves, except for that they occur along the shore. So they they're formed at the base of sea cliffs at places where one part of the rock is more easily eroded than the adjacent rock, allowing for the waves to attack and remove it more easily. And the sea caves are usually formed along vertical zones of weakness. We talked about that on um, beach erosion yeah. and sea cliffs. Some of a beach. Yeah, yeah. Faults are going to be a big contributor to that, right? Right. Um, or, or steeply dif dipping beds of softer rock. But since the waves can attack only the base of the cliff, the weak zone, it'll retreat faster there than it does higher up. The higher up part of the cliff, it'll remain the roof of the cave. And this is uh, really what you would think of the Pacific coast of the United States as especially a large number of these sea mm. caves and some of which like the, the sea lion cave in Oregon yeah. are, are popular spots for yeah. tourists. Got to write that one down too. Yeah. So lastly, there are the, the lava tubes. I like the one that Bilbo took to get to the cave where the dragon kept its ill-gotten <laughs> treasures. Yeah. That's, it's, it's exactly what I, I said last week. Yeah. 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 I like that, that line a lot though. Well, the lava tubes, they occur in areas where the basaltic lava has recently flowed from volcanoes and a tube forms when what we call a tongue of lava, it'll flow down a marked slope and it'll solidify on its outer surface, but the interior remains molten and it'll continue to flow down. These are really cool features. Yeah. Well, 
well, they were hot at the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but nice. when the when the liquid lava when it drained out of the interior of that tongue, a tabular cavity remains. <laughs> so a newly formed lava cave does not have an entrance at the level of the floor, but a thin part of the ceiling commonly collapses after the lava is cooled and thus forms an opening through which the cave can be entered. And lava caves, they can be many kilometers long and can branch both upstream and downstream directions of flow. Almost all areas of young basaltic rocks, they're going to contain some lava caves. We'll see those in western U.S., but Hawaii is the Yeah, like one, the right? Thurston yeah. Uh, lava tubes. Yeah, exactly. Well, my friend. I like I like talking about caves. Yeah, I, it's it's really interesting. So like it, it was a lot of fun to talk about and the the research while doing this. And I, and I think it hopefully will lead to more episodes concerning this specific subject of speleology. Speleology. Because yeah. I mean, we didn't even touch on the atmosphere of caves, which is a huge, That's like major. the humidity, ebb and flow springs. So the growth of stalactites, stalagmites, we get really into that and other spleothems. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, we didn't even get into the microorganisms and cave art and the, the bats. So, I mean, yeah. like, it's a whole ecosystem. Like It that. really is. So yeah. hope we can further explore the, the many exciting topics that go along with this. Uh, yeah. Such as caves. And I believe it was, this I, This was a good starting point. So like people were like, oh, how are caves form? Yeah. Well, then we can, at least now they have a frame of reference. And then they can join us later. Yeah. yeah. So I, I say we do a little of that freaking rocks to close us out. Yeah. Sounds good. Bam, 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 bam. And you know what that means. That means it is on to the new and improved That Freaking Rocks. And with us today, we have composer and solo artist Jason Keisling. That's it. All right. Hi, Jason. Hello. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Tell us a little bit about uh, you, your project, and then we'll get into a little bit of your songs and ask you a few more questions. Yeah. So I'm a solo artist based in um, Maryland, kind of between D.C. and Baltimore. And I have an album coming out probably either late summer or early fall so this is is actually an alternate version of the opener from that album so nice nice Um, nice we 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 like alternates so yeah yeah it gives it a twist ending yeah and so i'd like to say so jason and i are part of a little post-rock chat i guess it's like a a group it's called the post everything collective okay but that's how i met him um and it's just a bunch of like-minded musicians that like to write Really ambient stuff that you don't get. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think I say this every week is that I... I I, I'm just yeah, like, I, was, I gave you the cue this time. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it needs, like to me, it needs words, but I, no, I don't, I, I, we're here to talk about Jason. So yeah. how about we play a little bit of your, uh, about a minute or so of your song, As If the Sea Should Part, the, yeah. the alternate, and we'll go from there. So here we go.
right, everyone. So once again, that is the alternate ambient version of As If the Sea Should Part by Jason Keisling. Wow. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I really appreciate the, the layering, but the patience in the writing of that song. And we'll get to, I, I do have a question about the instrumentation choices and your panning. Mm-hmm. But first, I would like to know that title is very peculiar. Where did the name for the track come from and why is it phrased that way? The title comes from an Emily Dickinson poem. Oh. Um, so it's a poem I came across and I felt like it kind of fit the theme of what I was going for on the album because you know, I don't have any lyrics. So mm-hmm. I was trying to find ways to convey ideas both through the music and then also I use song titles somewhat to kind of tell the story I'm trying to tell on the album. Yeah. Wow. I haven't read one of her poems since probably high school, but that's, that's really (laughs) bad because her writing, I remember connecting with it really well. And of course everyone thinks you're weird if you connect with Emily Dickinson or Edgar Allan Poe and (laughs) I connected with both of those, but no, that that's awesome. That's one of my favorite things to know is where song titles and album titles come from. It does give it more context and you can, when, whenever you were saying that, I was like, I can see that. That, yeah. that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So and what I noticed in the song itself is like, it, it seems very sim- cinematic to the point to where I'm like, I can see it in movies. So have you ever thought about creating, I guess, a movie score? I, I have. Mean, yeah. I And I actually submitted some stuff to do a score uh, maybe a couple months ago. I didn't get the part, but uh, I was in talks with like a local indie film for a little while. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, so I'm hoping maybe for another opportunity opportunity in the future on that but it's definitely something I've considered and would love to do sometime oh yeah, yeah. I can I can see this it definitely in yeah I feel like that's that's definitely a common theme in our genre right like that's where we all envision ourselves going but to get to make that first step like like I can say we've never reached out to anybody to do a film score or anything so I find that were you intimidated to do that a little bit it was I I had to do a few scenes to kind of and and it was not actual scenes from the movie because I hadn't filmed it yet so there was just kind of some dummy scenes they sent me and the challenge I had was that they were all like 15 second clips and I'm so used to building things up over time in a song or and I was like oh man (laughs) how am I going to make this interesting in 15 seconds but also like tell the story of this scene that's just kind of two people staring at each other for 15 (laughs) seconds so yeah um, I I feel like it can convey that yeah yeah so I remember those and I I was like um, when you sent those to the group I was like why why would this not fit that scene so I don't know what they went with so I'm I'm very curious but back to your stuff because I don't care what they chose (laughs) (laughs) this song sounds a lot like to me a reflecting pool and I think I've talked to you a little bit I'm a huge Tolkien fanatic so I think of uh, Galadriel's mirror and so she's showing she's foreshadowing what is going to come in the Shire later on but do you feel like talking about the instrumentation you chose in the panning and how that relates to the title you chose yeah and and first I think it's really cool that you interpreted it that way because that's basically I mean this is the album opener and I pictured somebody on like a shoreline looking out at an ocean kind of reflecting on the journey to come like what is out beyond this horizon and and it'll rest album will kind of pick up on themes of that but this is kind of setting the tone so it's kind of cool that 
just based on the music itself, someone came to a similar conclusion. But the instrumentation, I definitely tried to, I wanted it to be very kind of spacious and very flowy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better word. Is that what like happens the with uh, post-rock? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's kind of the... <laughs> but, but I noticed that you do, like, like I could hear, and so that's something I'm not well-versed on are, like, digital things. So when mm-hmm. I say stuff like, I think I can hear a Rhodes piano, like, it's probably not a Rhodes. I don't know, but I, I could hear like that theme coming in and panning left to right, which that's where I kind of got that reflecting pool kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was something I added way later. I felt like mm. it needed just one little layer to like I had kind of the rest on. I was like, I need something to kind of fill this. And that was exactly what I was going for. I kind of wanted this kind of shimmery synth like thing to come in. I also don't know exactly which what which instrument that is, but I know exactly which part you're talking about. Yeah, I love that sound like that. That is one of my favorite timbers i guess is that the right like I, whenever i when i hear that uh the fl- i can f- it, in any music like i can feel it the butterflies yeah like i can it, <laughs> it i i don't know what it is even when i have it on like the my on my whenever i play it on some stuff like you can just feel it yeah yeah it, it just it, moves yeah resonate yeah. yeah there was also later it there was a really bright instrument it sounded like you know you were playing a pretty clean chimey guitar do uh-huh. you have guitar in this song yeah there's there's two guitars and the one you're probably talking about is just kind of these two note chords that I'm plucking Mm -hmm. with a lot of delay. And then there's a second one that kind of comes in in the fade out that's doing this really fun riff. And that was kind of a hard thing for me is when I was, it's one of my favorite riffs to play and I would normally want to feature it and, you know, have a new section of song that, but I felt like the song kind of needed to just fade away there so it, it added like a wah effect to oh, it and cool. like a, some other so it has like a very I wanted it to just kind of sound like it was rippling away with the music and it kind of has this very it's almost not even noticeable yeah it, it it's like the delay starts to melt at the end and I really like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, the melting quality is a good way to describe it. Yeah. So you did mention you have a new record that's on the horizon. So I, I wanted to hear a tiny bit about that, if you can. But also, yeah. if you can, I think you have a song or something coming out with a mutual friend of ours quite soon. Is that true? Yeah. Or am I making that up? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of which song you're... I think what, it, what like uh, At the Grove. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dennis plays drums on three songs on my album. So oh, cool. That basically the whole thing done. There's three songs that are kind of waiting on. I have a friend who is mixing and mastering, and he's also doing some extra guitar on two of them. Mm. And that's kind of what's left to be done. So Dennis did drums on all three of those tracks, and then it'll be six songs total. So as soon as those three get mixed and mastered, it'll be done. And I'm, I'm shooting for late August release, Cool, but haven't set a specific date yet. Awesome. I hope you do some sort of physical merch because any of my other friends or just people's music I enjoy, I like to collect that. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope you, I hope you do some sort of physical merch. And then I have, I, I wanted to see, so for, for our listeners out there, so how can they connect with you and listen to the music and find you on the social media? So this is like plug us. Tell, tell everyone where they can find <laughs> yeah find you yeah you can you can find me on all the stream like Spotify SoundCloud Bandcamp just under my name spelled K E I S L I N G 
Jason Kiesling. And then, um, and then I'm also on Instagram, which is probably where I'm most responsive. I do have a Facebook page. I, I'm not extremely active there, but for social media, Instagram is Jason Kiesling Music for my music one. Nice, nice. Awesome. Well, that's that's where you can find him. Go listen to him because yes, it, it, if you want to get uh, transported into this, I don't, <laughs> I, I, I just pool forever. It just put me in. A, I felt warm and enclosed yeah, in like is, a warm blanket, and just like I was like <laughs> I was just like swaying back here listening to it. Yeah, it's. It's kind of like where I see myself at like 85. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> now just like on the top just, of a mountain, just yeah. ah. staring out. Yeah. Out into the ocean. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. It was a real pleasure. I'm glad we could make this happen. So any, like if you want to jump back on like next season or something and talk about how your new record's doing, feel free to hit us up. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, have a good night, Jason. We appreciate it. You too. Yeah. And I just want to say that, yeah, Jason, that was an awesome interview. Thank you for allowing us to talk with you. And I I really do like our new and improved that freaking rock segment, man. Yeah. I think yeah. it was by far and away like. I think that's going to grow yeah. quite a bit. Um, I, a lot better than the uh, the way that the triple junction has gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been silent. Yeah. But it's it is okay. what it is. We'll get, it'll get there. It will get there. Uh, yeah. I, so I think that is um, about a wrap, wrap, my friend. Yeah. So, but then until next time, your geology daddies want to remind you to be cool. Stay tuned. And keep it on, on the, the rocks. rocks. Yeah. Hmm. 31. 31. Dude. We should drink some carbonic acid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that feels like it does. Yeah. <laughs>